Hebrews chapter 9. If you didn't bring a Bible and you do have some sort of electronic device, go ahead and call it up. Uh, because what you're going to see today is the most important thing about today will be what you read in the Bible, much more so than what I say. So I want you to see what God's Word has to say. So if you found Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14, would you stand please as we read together God's Word. <clears throat> Hebrews 9, 1 through 14, it's a long passage. I'm going to read it and we're going to come back and deal with it. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's begin right there, verse 1. <clears throat> Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness for a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. <clears throat> By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. <clears throat> but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify, for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You join me as we pray. Father, I need your help to rightly and accurately and precisely explain your word. We need your spirit to open us up to hear, to receive, and to rejoice in the good things that have come. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 
something missing. I've read this probably 50 times this week. Read from verse 1 to verse 10, there's something that's not there. There's something absent. <clears throat> it's, like, um, it's like walking up to the refrigerator, open it up, and you see that there is a Coke can in there. But on that Coke can, it says, diet caffeine free. And you drink it. <laughs> something missing. You read this passage and you, you realize something that's not there. It's a long passage. Verses 1 through 5 make up one part as the preacher who's trying to convince his people that Christ is so much better. He has them look back over their shoulder to what it meant to be Jewish. And he explains in verses 1 through 5 the tabernacle and the temple. Verses 6 through 10, he then explains the shadow priesthood, how, how the priest and even the high priest would be a foreshadowing of Christ. And then in verse 11, he he puts his spear in the ground. Now Christ has come. In verse 11 through 14, he gives us all the great glories of actually being in Christ. But if you read verses 1 through 10, something missing. And what he's doing is, he's showing us, and I hope that you'll see it, he's showing us when you read that, that there is no substitute for grace. All the religion in the world can't get you a relationship with God. There's no substitute for the grace of God found in Jesus. What I'd like to do is just go through this passage and uh, just take a look at it. Let's just go through verses 1 through 10. What I want to do is show you everything he built that you can't you can't build a life on religion. And then he brings us to the grace of God found in Jesus. Join me there. Verse 1. Let's just, let's just walk through it. <clears throat> he tells his people, you used to be Jewish. Now the first covenant, the first covenant, which was Judaism, the first covenant had regulations for worship. God gave worship to his people so that they might meet with him. His desire is to be close to his people. Sin kept us from being close. The tabernacle and the temple would be the conduit by which people could draw near to God. And he's always had regulations for worship. It's not just that God desires us to worship. He desires to tell us how to worship. God doesn't just give us the need for worship. He shows us how to worship. In fact, it dictates what we do here. The New Testament tells us that we ought to worship with psalms and hymns and songs of praise. We ought to have the Bible read out loud, comes from the New Testament. You ought to have the Bible taught and preached. We do that because we have guidelines for worship. God has always given guidelines for worship. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, the tabernacle in verse 2, for a tent was prepared. The tabernacle, that's where God would meet with his people. You'll find that story in the book of Exodus when he brought his people out of Egypt. And there in the desert, he had them build a tabernacle. That's where I'll meet with you. And the preacher saying to his people now, look back at your history. God has always had a place to meet with his people. And he prepared it in a holy place and a most holy place. For our tent was prepared in verse 2, and there in the first section, which would be known as the holy place, 
The first section has some pieces of furniture. Let's just walk through and a little bit of a tour. You walk through and you'll see the lampstand. That's the menorah. You've seen that. It has a root and then seven branches coming out like a tree, the root of which would be God himself and the flames on top, which would point to Christ as the light one day. There's the lampstand and the, the table in the holy place. The table with the bread and the wine would be there according to Exodus. There you find a reminder of God's good provision for his people. There is the holy place. Verse 3, behind that there's a curtain. Now remember, that curtain was a section that marked off the most holy place. You know that from when Jesus died on the cross, he breathed his last, and the gospel writers tell us that the curtain, that's what he's talking about here, the curtain in the temple tore from top to bottom and opened it up. The preacher's saying, don't go back to that closed off most holy place. There in the most holy place is an altar of incense, would be the symbol of, of the prayers of God's people. And there in the middle, the, the, the centerpiece of that most holy place is the Ark of the Covenant. And there we find in verse 4, it's covered with gold and um, has three elements. Ark of the Covenant had three things in it. That Ark would be so important for God's people, they would carry it everywhere. They would carry it off into battle. The Ark of the Covenant had three things, had the manna that God provided for His people in the desert, reminding us that God provides for His people. He had the, the rod of Aaron that budded. You remember that God is able to bring something that's dead to life. We're reminded. Then you had the Ten Commandments there in the ark that would remind us of God's call for holiness and righteousness. And then over the top of that, you keep reading in the passage, over the top, you find out that there is the mercy seat. There the mercy seat would be over the top of God's law, God's provision, God's new life that He gives by Aaron's rod. And there at the mercy seat, the blood would be applied to the mercy seat. We find out later as the passage goes on that this happens. Verses 7, 8, 9 or verses 7 and 8 tell us that uh, there's this day once a year, the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would go in and place the blood on the mercy seat. And the priest is telling his people, now you know all the rituals, verses 1 through 8. You know what they did. And then in verse 8, he says, now that, that's not there to save you. Verse 8, by this, the Holy Spirit is actually teaching you something. The Holy Spirit is indicating that there is a blockage. That the way to the holy places is not yet opened as long as you're holding on to this old way. Verse 9, which is a symbol. That word symbol is the word parable. It's something to teach us. So we look back at the Old Testament. We see the tabernacle and the temple. And they are there to actually teach us something what are they teaching us? Verse 9, symbolic for the present age, according to this arrangement, gifts, sacrifices are offered and they cannot. They can't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It can't be done. All the religion, you can have all the rituals that the priest would do every single day. You can stand around on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and watch as the 
high priest goes into the most holy place and it's still not going to be enough. Verse 10. Verse 10 tells us that that religion that deals with only food and drink and rituals is just a reminder until, is that word reformation? Until the reformation, until the, until the thing comes to make everything Right. You see, there's no real substitute for grace. Now, the preacher then turns the corner. He's laid the foundation, verses 1 through 10. He turns the corner in verse 11, and many people have said that verse 11 in chapter 9 is the pivotal verse in the entire book of Hebrews. And I want to try to get at the last few verses with asking you a couple of questions. Here's the first one. What is your testimony. What is your story of how you've become a Christian? The preacher says, here's the turn, but, see it in verse 11? But when Christ appeared, but when Christ came on to the scene, the most monumental, the most monumental event in all of human history is, but Christ appeared. What you have here is this contrast, this idea of Christ breaking in, that all the religion in the world can't get you where you want to be. It can't get you where God commands you have to be. Christ has appeared. Here's a picture of, uh, here's a picture of conversion. How do you understand what it means to actually become a Christian? How do you understand how you became a Christian? Kind of an hour on a walk yesterday morning. Uh, we do that oftentimes on Saturday mornings. Near the end of it, I usually will just kind of go through my sermon with her and uh, see if it makes sense. And sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. And I was explaining to her the, uh, hard, the hard thing about this. It's just a really hard passage to try to finally get to see Christ there. And we were talking about conversion. She's reading a book by uh, Melissa Kruger, and I just would recommend anything Melissa Kruger writes. And uh, she's talking about the Apostle Paul and his conversion. There was no warming up for the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a murderer and God converted him. And I'm reminded of the dramatic effect of what happens when Christ breaks in. You see, but when Christ appeared, every single thing changes. Is that your testimony? What is your testimony? When Christ appeared. Let me ask you another question. Maybe you can get it verse 11 better. Here's the second question. Do you actually, do you feel blessed? Do you feel, do you honestly, do, I mean, in your heart you think, okay, these things have happened in my life and I actually feel blessed or do you feel slighted? You see, the text says that uh, in verse 11, when Christ appeared, when Christ appeared, he was the high priest of the good things that have come, or yours might say, of the good things to come. Do you believe that God is actually doing good things in your life? Would you call yourself blessed? Do you trust the good plan of God? Do you trust that God has brought you this far and these things that have happened in your life are actually part of God's good design and good plan? Can you say 
this far I feel blessed. Do you trust God's good design? Do you trust God's good design for mankind? Do you trust what God is doing in your life and taking your faith deeper? Do you trust God's design in all that you've actually been through? A lot of you sitting in this room right now have been through so much. Do you trust that He is the potter and I am the clay and however He shapes and molds me in my life, He has done so according to a very good plan and taking us somewhere? Are you able to say, I feel blessed. Do you feel blessed? Social media gives us a picture into some of uh, inherent Christianity that says, hashtag blessed. Most of the time when I see hashtag blessed, it is something really good that's happening. That you got a, an extra sandwich at the Chick-fil-A or something really good has happened to you and hashtag blessed. And that is a blessing indeed. Are you able to say that though? Are you able to feel, genuinely feel when things are terrible? I want to see somebody hashtag blessed at the cemetery. I want to see somebody hashtag blessed when at the hospital room when that person you love so dearly had breathed her last? Do you trust that God, God is working these things out? Do you trust that God's good plan, are you able to say the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, and blessed be the name of the Lord? One question might be, what is your testimony? Another would be, do you actually feel, that's what I'm asking you today, do you feel blessed? Another way to, to ask would be in verse 12, a question might be, are things, are, are things settled? Is your soul settled? Is there evidence in your life that, that there's been such a conversion in your life that you're, you're giving fruit, you're showing you indeed are walking with the Lord, that, that things are settled in your life? There's no question. Notice the text, um, no, notice the description of how God works salvation through Christ. You see it in verse 12? Let me show it to you. <clears throat> in verse 12. Christ has entered once and for all. Verse 11 tells us of the tabernacle, the heavenly tabernacle not made with hands. Verse 12. Christ has entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Two things, entered once and for all, eternal redemption. It's ended. Would you say that your life spiritually has been settled? We talk a lot around here about the finished work of Jesus, what Christ has done to grant us salvation. Do you trust that God has done all that is necessary through the perfect life and the death of Jesus on the cross, God raising Him from the dead, that that is all finished and the only thing necessary to have you saved now is you believing that. The finished work of Christ. Are you settled there? Do you trust that if you were to die, for instance, right this moment, that to be apart from the body would be to be with Christ? Is that settled? 
I don't mean settled because you walked an aisle or were baptized. I mean settled because there is long-standing evidence in your life that God has done something. You're different than you used to be. You settled. Secure in your salvation. <clears throat> Do you? Here's, a, here's another question. We might press it further into verse 12. Do you feel loved? I don't mean by another person. I mean in a deeper, more profound sense. Do you feel loved by God? Do you trust that God absolutely loves you and it's enough that in Christ He saved you? Do you feel loved? Let me show it to you in verse 12. There's a key word there. Verse 12, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves. In other words, He's saying, not by the old system, but by means of His own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. There's lots to see there. One word in particular I want you to circle and, and learn to trust is the word redemption. Redemption is a word that is taken from the slave market. The writer of Hebrews knows that his church would be aware of what slavery is and how it works, that it is the buying of another human. And he goes down to the slave market, he picks up this word redemption, and he brings it back to teach his people what it is that God has done for us in Christ. Now, our historical memory, we, it's in the back. In the United States, we can, we can look back and we know the horrors and much to our historic shame. But it's close enough, it's close enough that we've read about it. Like I'm reading of the founding fathers. Many of them owned slaves. George Washington, when his wife died, he freed his slaves. Manumission, let the slaves go. That, that's not what this is. The preacher's not talking about just being set free. What he's talking about is this understanding that God in His infinite grace and love went down to the slave market of sin and saw us there and understood that the price of manumission, freeing the slave, would be his his own son's blood, that's what this text says, he was willing to spend every bit of that to open the doors, to get the shackles off her neck and her hands, and bring us home. Now, manumission is the slave is set free, you can do what you want. Redemption is something else. He has bought us from the slave market, brought us to his home, and said, all of this is yours. You're not a slave anymore and you're not set free anymore. You now are a child of mine. From slavery to adoption, do you feel loved by God? Do, do you think of what, what Jesus did for you on the cross and, and think long of Jesus dying on the cross and the grace of God that it took, the love of God poured out in your life do you feel, if you don't feel loved by God, you haven't thought deeply of what God has done for you in Christ. When you feel loved by God, God the Father, it gives this great security. When you feel loved by God and you understand redemption, when you understand you've been purchased by the blood of Christ, it gives you wonderful confidence. You're able to, to be confident, not in another person, you're able to be confident in God as your Father. Do you feel Loved. I'll ask another question. We'll go to verse 13 and 14, and I'll ask, do you, do you love, do you love doctrine? Do you like theology? 
Do you like to think about God? Theology is the study of God. There's no excuse for us now to not start, to not start growing in our theological understanding, a depth and texture to our theology, because we are running up on a time and culture where there's, no, there's nowhere left to hide. You can't get away anymore with kind of halfway being a Christian and halfway not. If you work in a, cor in a corporate America, you know this. You are being asked to actually affirm things you do not agree with. They go against everything you've learned and believe about the Bible. And, and if we don't have our theological lines and piles driven deep, then we tend to waffle. I thought about this when I um, came to verse 13 and 14. Verse 13 and 14 is a, an argument from lesser to greater. Lesser to greater. Verse 13 is the lesser, is the old system. system. Verse 14 is the greater. Let me, let me just read it to you. For if, so you know something's coming. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer. Now, Paul's there. That's from Numbers 19. It was a ritual that um, cleansed a worshiper from Numbers 19. Go and read it if you'd like to. So let's get the if. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled person with the ashes of a heifer, if that's sanctified for the purification of the flesh, then, here comes the argument, the greater, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serving the living God? Do you see the doctrine there? I mean, let me just dial you in in verse 8 to that phrase, through the eternal spirit. What you have here then is a feel, a tinge, a, a, an awakening of, of our triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. It's interesting that the preacher would mention the Spirit when he's talking about salvation. And it brings us to this understanding, you see. It's not just that we love Jesus and don't care about doctrine. If you love Jesus, you're going to want to know more about Jesus. The Bible teaches that our, our salvation is bound up in God the Father. It's a good way to think of it. Uh, helps me to think of it in a way like this, that God the Father has planned our salvation. God the Son has accomplished our salvation. We talk about the finished work of Jesus. God the Father planned it. God the Son accomplished it. And God the Spirit has applied it so that your eyes have been opened, your ears unstopped, your heart beat because of what the Spirit has done. And the picture here is of, of reminding us that that doctrine will forever be important. 2022, 2023, Right in the middle of Gay Pride Month. Why does that rub you wrong? It needs to be because of what you know the Bible has said and how God has affirmed the goodness of the sexes in the Scripture. And, and, and nothing else. It has to come from your, your doctrinal understanding. We need to make sure as the culture continues to go in a direction that is against the Bible, that you are not reacting emotionally, but you're reacting because of what you know to be true from God's Word. Do you love theology?
With that in mind, I'm going to uh, put a, a little point on that. Here's the next question. Do you understand grace? Do you understand what it took to save you? When you understand the depth of grace that it took to save you, what happens is you quit looking at other people's sin, you realize. When you understand grace, when you understand the picture, let me give it to you. What does it say of Jesus? Let's get real specific in verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, what did he do? Look, look at the phrase. He offered himself without blemish to God. The picture of grace. The, the, the idea is that God took the initiative. That you were not looking for God. God came looking for you. That Jesus took the initiative. You, can you handle the word premeditated? That this is God beforehand. Here is Jesus intentionally. The plan has always been to go to the cross. Here is the voluntary substitution of Jesus. We talk about theology. Grace is bound up in the phrase substitutionary atonement. That Jesus died on the cross in the place of sinners making atonement. Taking away the wrath of God. Do you trust the sufficiency of what Christ has done for you on the cross? That there's not anything else you can do. That Jesus did it all. And by faith we trust what He has done. Do you understand grace? The deeper you understand grace, the more humble you will be because you realize what it took to save you and you give grace to other people. If you, if you love theology and you start understanding grace, I'll ask you another question then. Here's the seventh one. Is, is your conscience clear? Is your conscience clear? Because truthfully, if you go back and read verses 1 through 9, at the end of all that he said in verse 9, he said all, the, all that religion doesn't do you any good because it doesn't purify your conscience. The old system. Now remember, remember what he's doing. Context is he's pointing his people. You go back there. Your conscience will not be clear. But verse 14 tells us there is a way to have our conscience clear. What does the text say? Verse 14. <clears throat> How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, he offered himself without blemish. That would be a lot to talk about there. Without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Purify our conscience. All religions been designed because there is this brokenness between people and God. The Jewish religion was built a symbol. It became a parable. It became a sign. It became teaching us that there's one coming. And the problem we have, if you've got a guilty conscience, you're sitting in this room right now. Look, you're sitting here and you've got a guilty conscience. What happens is if you have a guilty conscience, you actually become a, a moral coward. It's hard, to, it's hard to point out sin when you realize your own. It's hard for us to stand against. I mean, you end up with phrases like, well, who, who am I to judge? And there is some of that that is true. Nonetheless, we've been given a book that teaches us that which is right and that which is wrong. And the ability to stand up for that which is right means we actually are on that side. But you can't do it if you have a guilty conscience. Here's what Jesus has come to do. 
not just to forgive our sin, but He cleanses us. Let me talk to any of you that have sinned in your past and you're a believer, you're a child of God, a son of God or daughter of God, you've put your faith in Jesus and yet you keep carrying around this guilt. I want you to drink deep in verse 14. This is what salvation does. It doesn't just take away or forgive sin and pardon sin. He makes it as if, look, pure conscience, as if it never happened. Is your conscience clear? Have you trusted that the work of Christ, the finished work of Jesus on the cross, not only forgave you and reconciled you to God, but it also cleared your conscience? I'll just ask one more question before we go. Are you living your life for Christ? And that's where this, that's where this ends. Let's just not make it so that we can be right. I mean, worship, worship funds and worship energizes and worship shows up and how we actually live. Look with me at verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify, this is what he does, he purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He purifies us from dead works. Trying to earn your way. This is, the, this is um, the Protestant Reformation, 1517. This is where the understanding of penance, penance, from the Roman Catholic Church, penance is you work your, you've committed a sin, you've got to do something to make up for that, penance. You do penance. Protestant Reformation, saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, we understand repentance, which is the work has been done, for, the work has been done on the cross, nothing I can do to make my sin go away. I can turn from it and trust what God has done. And the text is saying this is what happens at the cross. You start living your life with a clear conscience by the grace of God and you live for Christ. Remember what uh, Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees? Called them hypocrites. He said, what are you scribes, and Pharisees, hypocrites? You, you clean the outside of the plate and the cup. You make it look good, but inside you got greed. Or, or he said to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You, you, you're like the graveyard where somebody has cleaned the tombstones and they're beautiful, except that they're full of dead people's bones. You're pretty on the outside, not change on the inside. That brings us back to the original. Do you have that testimony? Today I've asked you several questions. Do you feel loved by God because you've given your life to Christ? Do you understand grace? And has God in His goodness, by faith in Jesus, has He cleansed your conscience? Today is a part of our worship. What we're going to do is sing a song in just a moment. And as we do that, I'd like to give you an opportunity to respond to what you've heard. If you're unclear about your testimony, you're, you don't really know if you're a Christian. When we sing in a few moments, you're certainly welcome. We'd love to have you come forward. Our pastors are down here, talk to you and pray with you. Maybe you'd be more comfortable uh, talking to a pastor after church. We'll all be in the lobby. 
It's a good time to come up and say, I need to have a conversation about what the preacher was saying. I want you to understand the goodness of God and that there is no substitute for the grace of God found in Jesus. You join me as we pray together. The heads bowed this morning as we go to the Lord in a time of commitment and prayer. If through God's word, by his spirit, he has convicted your heart, you're not sure of whether or not you are in Christ. When we sing, we'll invite you to come forward. Or after church, you talk to one of our pastors so that you might be secure and have it settled according to God's grace found in Jesus. God, thank you for, thank you for the strengthening power of your word through your spirit. Thank you for the cleansing power of the blood of Christ for our conscience. Thank you for redeeming us and purchasing sons and daughters of God. I pray that as we sing today, that we might sing with hearts filled with joy because of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand please as we sing together?